please join me in an attitude of prayer. Holy and gracious God, for today we give you thanks. Lord, in this time, may your spirit descend upon us. May the words in our mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. We pray this in your name. Amen. <coughs> all right, we are in week two of Lent. And for our Lenten sermon series, um, I am using a book by Jill Duffield called Lent in Plain Sight, a devotional through 10 objects. And so every week, we're going to look at a different object and look at um, how uh, we can use it to uh, draw us closer to Christ in this Lenten season. And so last week, we talked about bread and how bread nourishes and sustains us and it comforts us. Jesus used bread on the night of his betrayal to teach us what he was going to do on the cross to save us from our sins. And so now every time we come to the table to celebrate Holy Communion, we use ordinary elements like bread to help us draw closer to Christ, and we remember his sacrifices. So that was bread for last week. Today we're going to move on to a new topic, and that new object, and that is coins. And just for the sake of today's message, I'm going to um, use the word money instead of coins. It just makes more sense. It's it's more applicable to our currency today. Um, so if there has been one lesson that I have learned in the last eight years of ministry, it would be that talking about money in church makes people squirm in their seats. It makes uh, pastors get sick before they preach on it. <laughs> and it is the most talked about topic in the Bible. The Bible and Jesus in particular have a lot to say about money or the topic of money comes up frequently in a multitude of ways. Um, We have all heard the tithing sermon on money um, that we are to give 10% of our income back to God because God commanded us. um, There's a verse in the Bible that God commands us to give back 10% of our first fruits or our income back to God. And uh, this is the word t- where the word tithe comes from, because tithe means 10%. Uh, we also see Jesus praise the woman in the temple who gave the last of her coins to the treasury, praising her for her commitment to God. We see Jesus chase money lenders and sellers out of the temple courtyard because they were taking advantage of people. We see Jesus forgive tax collectors who were notorious for basically robbing people of their money and claiming it was for use for the government. And Jesus even invited a tax collector to be one of his disciples. Uh, we also read about how Jesus said that we are to give to the government what belongs to them, and we are to give to God what belongs to God. So there are no shortages of, of messages in the Bible pertaining to money. But for this message today, I had to really dig down deep within myself and ask myself, what does money have to do with Lent? How does money help us draw closer to Christ in this Lenten season? Ironically, we turn to the Old Testament to show us that answer. So in Duffield's devotional, um, she writes about this passage that we read from today from Ezra. And um, she sets up the context of the passage from Ezra, and she talks about the importance of a very seemingly mundane passage. And I know that's a very boring passage. I, <laughs> I had to read it twice today, and I put myself to sleep every time. <laughs> 
It's a very boring, mundane passage, but it's actually kind of interesting the way she writes about it. So this is what Duffield writes. After nearly 50 years of exile in Babylon, the Jewish people returned to their homeland. The second chapter of Ezra reads like a census and then an accounting ledger. No detail spared. All these years later, we read the names of those making the journey back home. Servants and singers, horses and camels, mules and donkeys. Specific numbers are given. Seven. 337. 736. 6,720. Indicates the care of the scribe Ezra, who gives to this narrative of God's promise fulfilled. Fifty years of captivity meant some who had marched to Babylon would not be returning back to Palestine. Fifty years in a foreign country meant children had been uh, been born and grown and had children of their own, none of them knowing the majesty or ritual of the temple. Restoration and rebuilding require work, attention to detail, the investment of the entire community, all 42,360 of them. The first place the assembly goes is the site of the house of the Lord. What remains? Rubble? Remnants of objects once used in worship? Imagine the mix of emotions upon seeing what was once the center of their lives destroyed, but soon to be restored. In my head, I hear the voices of those venturing back to neighborhoods destroyed by fire or flood, looking at all that has been lost, but saying through tears, we will rebuild. The heads of some families make a statement with their resources, put their money where their hope is, and give a free will offering. Ezra gives us the numbers. 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minus of silver, and 100 priestly robes. Just thinking about the destruction and the decay that those exiles must have faced coming home must have felt to them as if the journey ahead was going to be almost impossible or even insurmountable um, in their desire to start over and rebuild. But that desire to rebuild fueled everything they did, and their first priority was in rebuilding their temple, their center of worship. So obviously, all of us cannot relate to um, what the post-exilic Israelites were going through. We, we can't imagine devastation on that magnitude. Um, but when I read this devotion from Duffield, another situation came to mind um, that impacted a local town um, that, where a local town lost all of their homes and uh, they had to start over. And uh, you might have probably have all heard of it. It's the now ghost town of Elvira. Have you guys heard of Elvira? You, some of you have? No? No? Okay. So Elvira, so you know where Elamsport is, right? You go down Gap Road um, over the mountain there. So that's Elamsport. Near Elamsport, um, if you go, actually it's called Elvira Road. If you take Elvira Road up, it'll lead you into what's now the game lands. Um, so Elvira was much like what Lokington is today, what Elamsport is today. There were families that lived there. They had homes. They had farms. They had community. Um, they had churches and cemeteries. And what happened was after the start of World War II, the government came in, came in and claimed and seized the land for its own use for the, towards the war effort. Um, 
And uh, it was always told to me that they had promised to give back their land after the war was over. Um, but as people were driving away with their possessions, they were destroying homes even as they were driving away. And so what they did then was they built, um, I forget how many, I think I read like a hundred some uh, igloo style bunkers and it was supposed to hold um, explosives that would be used towards the war effort. And, uh, but what ended up happening was is that they didn't need as many um, bunkers to help hold the explosives as they thought they were gonna need. And um, they actually ended up being largely unused. And by the end of the war effort, there were empty igloo-style bunkers everywhere, homes were destroyed, and nothing was given back to the community. And so part of the land was absorbed into what's now the Pennsylvania State Game Lands. Um, and you can go tour, well, you can't really tour, you can go walk around what used to be Elvira. Um, part of it was also absorbed uh, by the uh, correctional facility in Allenwood. Um, the only building that I believe still stands in its entirety is the old stone church. And every now and again, they the, the prison will open up its, its gates so that the public can come in and tour the stone church. And in case you haven't recognized, I have a personal connection to Elvira. Um, that's where my dad's side of the family grew up. So um, there, I remember many times growing up, my parents would take us to, uh, to the game lands to see Elvira, to walk around and find the old homesteads. You know, you can find the little corners of where the houses once stood. Um, we would go walk around the cemeteries and find names my dad would recognize. But what happened was, um, so when they were kicked off their land, uh, they, most of them went to go settle in, in Elamsport. And they ended up having to rebuild their entire lives. And, um, but what ha ended up happen happening was that they still needed a church home because they lost their church home. Um, so that was when they took over an abandoned white church on a hill in Elamsport and claimed it as their own. That church is now St. John's United Methodist Church, part of the Elamsport Charge. That's the church where I grew up in. And so that's part of my family history and part of my church history uh, was hearing my family members and uh, my, uh, the, uh, when I was a little girl, they were much older members of the church talking about the days in Elvira. But for them, that church became the new center of their community and connection to each other to help them in rebuilding their community and lives and helping them to start over. And by the way, I could have substituted that story with your story of what happened after the fire because the way you explained the history of your fire 100 years ago was that um, when, when the fire was done and you vowed to rebuild, the very first cornerstone laid was the cornerstone to this church. That was your community's first priority. And so our two communities have very similar histories and very similar uh, priorities. While we will never know the devastation that the post-exilic Israelites faced, um, we do understand what it means to um, face destruction and chaos. And as a community, we have learned to come together to rebuild the church as our common center, and in so doing, draws us closer to Christ. Duffield continues in her devotion uh, about the Israelites, and she said this, 
So determined were they to restore the place of worship in the center of their lives. The first thing some heads of families do is put gold and silver coins in the treasury. Like those lead gifts in a capital campaign, these returning exiles model confidence and a yet-to-be-seen future, inspiring others to give according to their resources too. Coins freely given contain the power to cast a vision and shape the future. Generosity begets generosity. Backing our belief in God's promises with our coins, time, energy, and talents demonstrates faith even in the face of rubble, loss, and a whole lot of work yet to do. While this passage in the book of Ezra seems overly mundane and boring, what is actually beautiful about the book of of Ezra is that every item that was donated and given was counted um, for the rebuilding of the temple. Every gift mattered, no matter how small, no matter what it was. It was recorded and counted because it was given in faith, given by people who made God their priority in their giving. When we talk about our money today, no gift is too small. Every gift given by faith, even um, no matter how big or small, counts and matters because it is given out of a desire to see the church and mission of God continue. As we continue in our Lenten season, we are reminded that Lent is about learning to intentionally put God first in our lives. We need to be more intentional in making God our priority. This is also a season of conviction where we recognize that there are areas of our lives where we do not put God first. And perhaps for some of us, that is in the area of finances. Now, I'm not saying that you need to give a certain percentage of your income or give even more money than what you're giving now, unless you feel convicted to do so. I'm not saying that you need to fund certain ministries of the church unless you feel convicted to do so. But what I am saying, and it's something that I've always said when I've talked about money, and I believe the book of Ezra is saying this as well, is that we are to give to God first and what we are able to give. Whatever we are able to give, no matter the amount, we know that God is able to use this ordinary object and use it for God's greater plan. God counts all of it, no matter what we give, as an act of faith and is seen as living into the hope for the future. And we have excellent role models who demonstrated this act of faith and hope from people in the Bible, from um, people in our community, in our family histories. Living by their examples, even when we face insurmountable odds, we know that if we keep God the center of our lives, the center of our community, the center of our acts of faithfulness, we can be assured that God will use ordinary objects and turn them into extraordinary lessons of faith that draw us to the heart of Christ. So thanks be to God for this ordinary object of money. Amen.